We're excited about Nehemiah, um, and if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you're not super familiar where Nehemiah is, that's fine. It's in the Old Testament, which is the first half of your Bible. Uh, if you get to the book of Psalms, you've gone too far, so just back up uh, a little bit. Uh, but you'll see Chronicles, uh, first, second Chronicles, and Ezra, and then Nehemiah is right there. And if you're not sure where any of that stuff is, there's a table of contents. Don't be afraid to use that. But we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1. One uh, this morning. And what we're going to see in this series uh, are some really important things about God, and I think some really important things that God has for us. So somebody was asking me already this morning, why are we going into Nehemiah? Why are we departing from, from John uh, for a bit? Well, one reason is uh, we always want to make sure that we're spending time in the, New, in the Old Testament uh, as well as the New Testament, so that's really important for us. And then, too, the message of what Nehemiah has for us uh, is really important, not just for this church, but I think for the church uh, and for those of us who are followers of Jesus, because we see in this book that God's uh, not only a creator God, but he's a, he's a recreator God. He, he's not only a, a, a builder God, but he's a rebuilder God. So if, if you're a, a person who's desiring that God would start something new in your heart, well, God does that. We're going to see that in this book. If, if, you hear, if you're here and you feel like, man, my heart and my life um, are kind of in shambles, they kind of feel kind of broken down, and I just need God to rebuild me, to rebuild my life. Well, we're going to see that God does that too. So let's pray, uh, and then we'll get right into this this morning and see what God has for us. Father in heaven, we love you, God. I thank you for the invitation that we've already sung, God, that we um, can come to you. And God, your, um, your invitation is for those who are weary and need rest. God, your invitation is to those who are um, mourning and need comfort. God, your invitation is to those who have failed and need strength. It's to those who have sinned and need a savior. And so, God, we just thank you for the way that you welcome us in your son, Jesus, who is the friend of sinners, who is the savior of the world. Um, God, we need, um, we need to be quieted in your love. Your word tells us that you do that. And so, God, we just want to take just a moment um, of stillness and quietness um, so, God, that we, would, um, that we would hear from you this morning. So would you do, just take a moment just to, just to pray that, just to pray that you would hear from God. I want to ask uh, that you might just pray for me just in this moment. Um, the scripture is very clear that it's not about human strength or ability, um, but the word says and God tells us that it's by his spirit um, that, that his will is accomplished. So would you, would you just pray for me um, that God might speak to me by the power of his spirit and that his presence and power would be experienced in this next moment here. Father, I want to be completely submissive to you uh, as your word is open and God as this preaching takes place here. So um, I'm just asking for your spirit 
I'm asking for the gift of preaching. God, I'm asking uh, that my heart would be soft before you. And God, um, that everything that we say and do, Jesus, would bring honor to your powerful name. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, during uh, quarantine at our house, we went through uh, a little bit of a remodel. And I know a lot of people, this, they did this. Um, ours was prompted by a, a tiny little flood in our kitchen. So we were able to take a leaky faucet and turn it into a home remodel. Uh, so it was like my wife's magic like that. Um, and a big part of that uh, remodel we discovered is, is demolition. Um, and it was tearing out old cabinets and countertops and floors and things that really didn't belong there anymore, apparently. Um, so that something new can be built in its place. And as we look over, really, I think the past year to even 18 months and what we've seen in our world and what we've seen in this church, what we've seen in the church, I believe that's a work that God has graciously been, been doing. And, and I believe that God's not just rebuilding what was there, um, but I believe that God is in the midst of a new work. And in this book, we're going to see in the story of Nehemiah, in the memoir of Nehemiah, just how God does a new work after it feels like things have been torn down, after it feels like things have been demolished. It's happened really all throughout church history. If you know the story of the church, or if you kind of look back through the history of the church, you see with the people of Jesus, there's been moments where they've walked with him, and then there's been moments of apathy and moments of unraveling. And it's at those low moments that the people of God will cry out and you'll see God move with power. And he meets his people in that place. They begin to pray and he begins to move. And that's a great place to start. Because renewal, which was what we're praying for, what we're desiring, what we're believing in, what we want to press into in this, in this series is renewal that only happens by God, but renewal starts at rock bottom. So if you're in a place in your life and you're hungry for renewal, specifically the renewal that only God can bring, and you find yourself at just a rock bottom moment, um, that's a grace of God right now. Because renewal starts at rock bottom. How many of you, that, that's like your story, your testimony. That's my story. That's my story. When God renewed me, renewed my life, renewed my spirit as an absolute rock bottom moment. And I didn't see it at the time, but now I see what a grace of God that was. My friend Tyler likes to always say that grace, this unmerited, unearned favor of God, the superabundance of God himself in the person of Jesus, grace flows downhill and pools at the lowest places. So if you feel like I'm at the absolute lowest place, there's good news for you because that's where Jesus meets you. And we're praying that's where Jesus will meet us. It's in the lowest places that God raises up people in revival. That's what I'm praying for. That's what we're hoping for. It's what we're leaning into. Because Nehemiah is a story of renewal and a story of revival of how God can bring beauty from ashes and how he can bring rebirth to a nation and to a people that have been entirely devastated by sin. Do we need that? 
Now, if you read the Old Testament, we got to back up a little bit because not, we can't just plop into Nehemiah and assume that everybody knows what's going on up to this point. So if you, if you back up, if you read the Old Testament story and you start with this true story of the world, you're going to see that God created humanity uh, to walk with him and to enjoy him forever. And God gives the gift of life. He gives the gift of relationship with him, relationship with one another, relationship with his creation. He gives the gift of calling and vocation. So work is not sin. Work is not evil. Work is a gift of God. The way we treat it oftentimes is sin and evil. Another message, another time. But just so you know, God gives vocation. God gives calling. It's good. He gives purpose. But then if you know the story, our first parents rebelled against God and you see the world descend into anarchy and chaos and the exploitation of women and the young. And yet God, in his mercy, he raised up a man named Abraham and he said, I'm going to bless you and your family and your family will be a blessing to the nations and you're going to show them what it looks like to be a people who walk with me. And Abraham had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons who became the nation of Israel. And God moved them strategically to a piece of real estate that was the one land bridge between three major continents. And he promised this people, you are going to be my chosen people in my chosen place, and you'll be a nation of priests. And as I bless you, you are going to be a blessing to the nations all around you. This was God's intention. This was God's design for his people. And the nation of Israel later was enslaved by the nation of Egypt for centuries. God set them free through a man raised up named Moses. And he brought them to that promised land. And God again said to his people, I'm going to use you as a shining light, as what it looks like when a nation trusts God. It's a glorious promise, a glorious future for this people. But what do they do? Joshua leads them into the land You get to the book of Judges, and I don't know if you've ever tried to do a quiet time in the book of Judges, but it's a really dark place, right? It's massively depressing, massively dark. You see the people of God that we're walking with him abandon him. I mean, this book is so dark. There's parts of this book where they're murdering prostitutes and cutting them up and mailing them to each other. So that's a rough way to start your day with God. But It's horrible. And God says to them, he says, you're worse than the nations that I drove out. You were meant to be a light to the other nations of what it is to walk with me, and you're an embarrassment. And and just like Adam and Eve, they believe the lie, they forsake relationship with God, they forsake the call in their lives, they forsake the promises that he's given. And even so, people begin to cry out, and they rise up, and finally King David comes up and leads them to a place of flourishing as a nation. And his son Solomon leads them to their height as a nation. But then he begins to walk away from God. And his son actually divides the kingdom. And you see throughout the kings this cycle of sin. And God warns them, I want to bless you, but if you don't bless others, then I won't bless you. And I won't keep giving to you if you're going to keep exploiting the poor. And there's this cycle, and then finally in 721 B.C., God drove the northern kingdom of Israel out, scattered them by a people called the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom of Judah hangs on for a little bit, but yet they persist in their disobedience. And God warns them to the prophets until finally God says, you know what, you're scattered too. 
In Jeremiah chapter 52, we see the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of God, is burned and left in ruins. King Zedekiah has his sons killed right in front of him. And then they blot out his eyes. So the last thing that he sees before he's locked up is his sons being murdered. And the greatest and the most talented children of Israel were carried off to be slaves and servants in the houses of the Babylonian kings. And when you get to the book of Nehemiah, you see now that the Babylon Empire had been replaced by the Persian Empire. And now the greatest of the Jewish people have been scattered into exile. And men like Nehemiah are servants to a pagan king. The nation of Israel is at its lowest point. But God is going to use one man to bring revival. God's going to use the faithfulness of one. In the book of Ezekiel, God says, the people of our land have practiced extortion. They've committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and the needy. They have extorted the sojourner without justice. And, 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 and through the prophet Ezekiel, God says, I sought a man who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before the land that I would not destroy it, but I found none. Ezekiel's talking about the day of Israel's unraveling. And God said, in a day of injustice, I was looking for someone to defend what was right, and I found none. But God's going to build up a man who will bring forth a wall of protection, who's going to stand in the breach for his people. God's going to raise up Nehemiah. And this book is all about restoration and revival, the kingdom of God advancing in the midst of darkness and destruction. I think it's a message we need today. What we're going to see in chapter 1, briefly, is how that revival starts. And you can take this message and you can apply it to our nation. You can apply it to the church. You can apply it to our church. You can apply it to this community. But as the famous prayer goes, Lord, bring revival and let it start with me. And in Nehemiah, God brings revival to a nation. But we're going to see it start in the heart of one man. And my hope, my prayer, at least for me, is that God would start a revival in my heart that God might start a revival in yours. So if you're into that, let's start in chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Now, for those of you who struggle to read the Old Testament, I just proved why right there. There's a lot of, what in the world was all that about? Here's what you need to kind of understand about Nehemiah. This is the memoir of one man um, who's about to make a difference for an entire nation. The month of Kislev, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, is from an old Jewish calendar. It's roughly about the time of November, maybe early December. So it's the winter time. And the fortress of Susa is the winter residence of the Persian king. So Persia at the time had two capitals. There was a winter residence and a summer residence. And Artaxerxes is the king at the time. And he preferred the winter palace. And it's about the 20th year of his reign. So the, the thing you need to know is that Nehemiah is a Jew, but he's living in the palace of the Persian king, and he has a very privileged position. Look at verse 2. It says this, Hananiah, Hananiah one, of the, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. 
Now, here's the problem, and this is, we get into the tension immediately in this story. There's bad news from the old country, the nation that God had built. So Nehemiah says, tell me about the people, uh, and then tell me about the place. And when, when, when Babylon was supplanted by Persia, God moved the heart of King Darius of Persia to send some Jews back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah wants to know, how is that going? Verse 3, they said to me, well, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. So tell me, how, how's it going with our people? How, how's it going in the city? How's it going in Jerusalem? And the word is, not good. It's not good at all. It's burned down. The people are in disgrace. The people are in trouble. The town is trashed. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the city about 140 years ago. And when the people were sent to rebuild it, the project was violently shut down by Artaxerxes. And the people are in shame and the walls are, are destroyed. Now, why does this matter? Because in, in our day, this might be missing just a little bit. But you see, back then, when your city had a wall uh, that would surround it, it was your guard and it was your, it was your glory. It would keep marauders out so that you wouldn't be terrorized and you'd be kind of in control of your own safety, your own situation. So you could put a wall up, you could protect your people, and, and you could flourish. Because if you feel safe, then, then we feel like we can, we can flourish. So a well-guarded uh, wall, so a wall guarded you. If it was a great wall, it was your glory. It was a successful city. And so how does Nehemiah respond when he hears this news? Look at verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Where, where does revival start? Where does renewal start? It starts with a broken heart. If you want to see revival in this nation, if you want to see revival and renewal in this church, in this community, in your own life, if that's what you're hungry for, if that's what you want, it starts with a broken heart. He hears the report, he collapses, he weeps, he mourns. Now it's interesting because it's really not his problem. He lives in Susa, he lives in the in the in the capital. He lives in, in luxury. So, so the problems of those people are not his problems. But still, he sees the hurt of his people, and he won't separate himself emotionally. And he, and he reacts, and he, he weeps. The first move of revival for the people of God is when we first fall to the ground and let what breaks God's heart break our heart. The first move of revival is when we know what breaks God's heart and we let it break our heart. When we don't separate ourselves from the things that God is concerned about. When we're actually as concerned about those things as God is concerned about them. The, the weeping prophet Jeremiah would say, the hurt of the daughters of my people is my hurt. Meaning, if you walk with God, what breaks his heart should break yours. 
And the prophet Jeremiah says, when I see these people hurting, my heart hurts too. We've seen already uh, when we're looking at Jesus and John that, that Jesus did this. The Bible tells us when he sees the crowds who were lost and harassed like sheep without a shepherd, he doesn't ridicule them for being undisciplined. He doesn't give them a stern talking to, like, how could you fall for this? The scripture says he had compassion, co-passion. Jesus looks at these people and he says, I suffer along with you. He suffered with them. We see ultimately he suffers for them. He wept with them. And that motivated him to teach and to lead them. You see, every movement of God starts with a man or woman whose heart is broken over what breaks God's heart. The way forward is to fall face down. Uh, in March of 2020, uh, Sean Warren, who's one of our pastors here, and Chuck Bishop, who's one of our elders, and I uh, went to Haiti and Dominican Republic, and we spent some time uh, with some leaders that we as a short church uh, support there. Uh, and when we, got, when we got to the DR, we met a guy named Rod Davis, who's, who's a director of a ministry called Tears there. We support Rod's an incredible guy. Um, about 25 years ago, Rod was working as an as employee at, at FedEx, um, and just he was in church and God was just all over him as he was starting to just kind of be really affected by the things that affected the heart of God, primarily his care and concern for the poor and for the least, the last, and the lost. And, and Rod just came home one day and he told his wife, he said, listen, um, we, we have to go to Haiti. I've researched. It's it's the it's the poorest, most uh, disadvantaged country in our hemisphere, in our area, uh, and we we have to move there. And his wife says, "You have to move there. Uh, I'm not going. I'm not taking our two young children to to Haiti." And he said, a few days later, he just couldn't get, he just couldn't get away from it. He kept praying. He kept praying. And one day, he walked into the bedroom, and his wife was sitting on the bed just weeping. And she said, "We have to go." God just won't let me. God's breaking my heart over it. So they moved their family, uh, and they 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 took everything uh, that they could they could fit into suitcases and took that everything else they sold, and they flew to Haiti and they got in the cab and they named I can't remember the name of the little area that they went to, um, but at the time it was the most violent. Um, uh, most impoverished area in all of Haiti. In fact, uh, the, they had to find several cab drivers that would even take them to this area. And when they got there, the UN was posted outside with machine guns and said, you can't come in here. Nobody comes in or out of here. And they camped outside this little area for days uh, until finally the UN let them in. And they spent, uh, they spent about six months in this area. It just became just too rough. It was ultra-violent, ultra-just, just, just, it was a bad situation. So Rod said, I, for, to care for my family, I have to get them out of there. So they went across the border to Dominican Republic. But he did the same thing. Found a cab driver. He said, take me to the toughest barrio in the country. And they drove him. They drove them to this place, and they got there, and it was run by uh, drug lords and a cartel. It was crazy impoverished. There was no clean water, very little food. They were able to buy a house that they got grossly overcharged for. They had no money. They don't speak Spanish. So this is not a lesson on like what you should do, but this is like what they did. And Rod was telling the story of watching his, his kids get sick because the water was so bad. 
and how that they would pray over one small little cup of rice because it was all they had left just to get a knock on the door that a neighbor had some extra rice or some extra beans. And he talked about just the, the struggle, but also the determination um, because he said, I just, I, God has broken my heart for these people. And 25 years later, um, this place that was uh, the toughest barrio overrun by drug lords, the, the, the main drug lord guy is now a Christian there. There's a thriving church, a thriving school, a thriving medical community. There's a thriving business where they provide clean water uh, and food security to the residency. So Rod has, has taught all these entrepreneurs how to start their own business. It's one, of, it's, it's one of the great success stories of the Dominican Republic. Because of Rod? No. Because of God. And because Rod listened to God. And I hope one day you get to meet him because it's, it's, it's fantastic. Did the, people, did the people need the gospel? Yes, but I remember he said to me, you know, it's a lot easier to hear the gospel on a full stomach. It's a lot easier to hear the gospel when you don't have dysentery. All because God broke his heart over what was breaking his heart. You see, your heart must be moved deeply if you're going to be used greatly. There's really no other way. And, and you see that God does that all throughout history. He calls us to have co-passion with those who are suffering. Look, look what Nehemiah does as his heart begins to break. Does he just fire off a tweet? Does he just post an article on Facebook about his particular opinion on it all? He takes his emotion to God because for true revival and renewal, you need a broken heart, but you need a big God. And he fasts and he prays. And listen what he says in verse 5. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. As he begins to pray, he starts to list off the characteristics of God to give him perspective while remembering what's true of God. He's saying, yes, my problems are real. But there's a God that's above them. There is a God in heaven, meaning that above all my problems, even above my own personal potential, above my obstacles and above my assets, Nehemiah realizes I can only accomplish a little bit with what I have. And my problems are God-sized. And so he says in the midst of his pain, as he sees his brokenness in, in, in culture, as he sees the brokenness in the world, and as you feel pain, and I hope that you take your broken heart to a big God and realize that he's above your problems because he opens up a whole world of possibilities, not because of your power, but because of his. You see, renewal and revival does not start with your resume. It starts with a broken heart before God. Nehemiah calls God great and awesome because God is great and awesome. And he sees that he has a God-sized problem, and so he needs God-sized power. The revival and the renewal that we need, that we want, that we pray for, that we're leaning into, that we're hoping for is God-sized 
work. Revitalization of a nation needs God-level power. The new thing that God wants to do in this church is not accomplished with human effort and human skill and human creativity and, 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 and human ability. It is a supernatural work birthed and breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God, which is why we're always praying, come Holy Spirit. That was a little tiny mustard seed of faith over there. I love it. There is God-sized work that we are praying for, and we need God-level power. And Nehemiah knows all of this, and he gets it right when he comes to God because he starts to talk to God exactly who he is. The third step of revival, we're going quick here, is humble confession. Is humble confession. Look at verse 6. He says this, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. This is what Nehemiah is saying. He's saying, God, you've been faithful, but we haven't. We've broken all of it. God, you told us to love you, And we walked away from you. You told us to care for the orphan and the widow, and we didn't. We exploited them for our own comfort. But listen, notice in the in the humble confession here, he doesn't he doesn't just confess the sins of others. He he doesn't just say, Well, all those people did that. He wasn't even there. He was born in captivity. He wasn't even a part of the nation when they exploited the people and earned their exile. But he doesn't distance himself from his people. He says, my people sinned, and I'm a part of that, and my family is a part part of that. There's something so important for us to learn there, because if you just get good at pointing out the sin of other people, all that that will build in you is a self-righteousness. And self-righteous people are not just impossible to be with. Your heart will, go, will grow small, and revivals are not born out of people with small hearts. Revivals are born out of people with empathetic hearts and people who weep over the pain of others and see the hurt of others as their own hurt. I'll confess my part and I'll do what Jesus says to do with reconciliation. He says, point out the speck in your brother's eye. That's a part of it. But first take the log out of your own eye. When my wife and I were first married, I was um, absolutely baffled um, why Lauren could not understand all of my clearly superior arguments on every issue. Why can't you just submit to the fact that I'm always right? She had some kind of weird problem with that. But slowly over time, um, I've learned and am learning that I have huge blind spots. And I can't see them because they're blind spots. And because she's a great wife, she has showed me over the years how I can communicate better with her and how, yeah, you might have a good point, but your tone is not good. Your attitude is not right. 
So if you can be humble and bring something to me, I might be able to receive that better. And someday, hopefully, that lesson will sink in with me. <laughs> Humility is the start of intimacy. When, I, when I'll do premarital coaching with couples, I always talk about this when we, we start talking about intimacy. Intimacy is born out of a place of humility. When I lay my life down for you and you see that, that allows me to kind of enter in. It allows you to enter in. Humility is the start of intimacy. Humility is the start of revival. A laying down of our life is the birthplace of the renewal and the revival that God does in the life of a church and in the life of a Christian. Nehemiah says, I wasn't part of the people that broke all this, but I'm part of the nation that walked away from God, so there's room for me to repent. Now, I know some of you, you're, you're listening to this, you're like, look, I don't have a covenant with God. I'm not a Jew from the Old Testament. I'm not even a Jesus follower, so I'm not breaking any promises with God. But the Bible would say that God created you and you're made in his image to know him and to live with him. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans will say that even those of us without a covenant with God, we violated our own conscience and that all of us are born with a sense of right and wrong and a sense that we've broken that. All of humanity has gone astray, the scripture says. And as part of the human story, all of us, regardless of where you would say you are in a relationship with God, all of us have a place to say, God, I've rebelled against you. All of us have a place where we need to repent. The fourth place where revival starts is in an unshakable promise. Let me read those verses again. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you've gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Verse 9, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I love that, you are not too far gone. Somebody needed that this morning. I need that. I will gather them from there and bring them to a place I've chosen as a dwelling place for my name. You see, Nehemiah doesn't blame God for the problems in the world he said, we've done a fine job making this mess ourselves. Humanity made this mess. God's been faithful. We have not been faithful. But yet he still asks God for revival. He says, God, be with us, dwell with us, redeem us. And he asks on the basis of God's own promise. If we rebel, we will be scattered. I got it. We are getting what we deserve. But if we repent, you'll restore what we don't deserve. So Nehemiah says, let it start here. Let it start right here. I'm repenting. I'll be the first one. Uh, There's a British evangelist named Gypsy Smith, and he was asked one time, uh, how does a revival start? And he answered the question. He said, this is how revival starts. Go home and go into your closet. And in the closet, take a piece of chalk and draw a circle around yourself and kneel down in that circle and say, Lord, bring revival and let it start right here in this circle. If we want to see revival, it starts right here. God, restore. I'm asking you for revival, not based on my power, not based on my resume, 
but based on your promise. God, you move. Nehemiah has the confidence to believe that God can revive a nation and a church and that God will fulfill his promises because we serve a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And later on, God's going to tell his people, if we confess our sins, church, he's what? He's faithful and just. It's the right thing for him to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Not on the basis of our work, but on his. And he tells us if we confess our sins to one another, that we would be healed. Pray for one another. And I don't know the struggles that are in this room, but if you want to see restoration in your life, what is breaking your heart, what is breaking you down, bring that to God. Bring that to God. Confess to him. And then grab on tight to his promise of forgiveness and cleansing and healing and restoration. And the more that you pray like that, the more that God will create in you a clean heart, his scripture says, and a willing spirit. And Nehemiah closes his prayer in verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. As he's crying out for mercy, he's asking God to move. And then he asks God to use him. You see, back then, if you were the king of Persia, you'd have a cupbearer. And this is the guy who would taste the wine and the food before the, the king. Um, and, and part of that was to see if it was good. The other part was to see if it was poisoned. Because if it was poisoned, it would kill the cupbearer and not the king. So to be a cupbearer uh, was to be a, a servant, but you had to be the most trustworthy servant. And so the cupbearer had an extremely influential position with the king. And as Nehemiah weeps over the state of his people, God shows him how he's going to raise him up and use him in a unique way. And as you personally move towards repentance and humility and have a broken heart and spirit over sin, you're going to begin to see how God begins to use you in the place that you are for his renewal and restoration and to see that work out. You see, Nehemiah sees that God has not put him where he is by accident. He's in exile, but he's not there by accident. And so he prays, God, you got to give me mercy with this man. And in this moment, this is not the point of this message, but this is such an important moment or such an important point just to make that God has you in the place that you are in specifically for his purposes, for his name, for his glory, for the revival and for the renewal of people that they would come back to God or that they might come to God for the very first time. So whatever it is, wherever it is that God has you, you are not stuck in a dead-end job. You are not stuck in a dead-end relationship. You're not stuck in a, in a place that you don't want to be. You are stuck exactly, you're, you're not stuck, you're placed right in the place that God has you for his work. And you will not see it. You will not see it until you humble yourself and submit to whatever God has for you. I want to preach that, but I can't do it right now. Nehemiah is going to ask this king, and we're going to see this in chapter 2 next week, if he can rebuild the walls of an enemy city. This king, Artaxerxes, is crazy violent and really unstable, 
who would kill Nehemiah just for even bringing up the idea. In fact, uh, in chapter 2, Nehemiah is sad about this. This king could kill Nehemiah just for being sad in his presence, let alone ask to rebuild this enemy city. But Nehemiah prays this prayer because maybe the God of heaven who can control earth and the hearts of kings, maybe that God can rebuild a city and bring revival. Will you believe that? Will you weep uh, for the pain and the brokenness in the world around you? Will you draw near to those who are hurting in pain? Will you step out of your own opinion and your own perspective to see the perspective of someone not like you? Will you this week have co-passion with someone else? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor who's in pain and you say, you know what, I'm not going to stay distant, but I'm actually going to draw near to them in their pain. I'm actually going to weep with them. Can we as a church be known for our heart that is humble enough to be moved by God, to move towards who and what he would move towards? And maybe it is a prayer for our nation. Maybe it is a prayer where we get on our knees and we pray for God to move. Do we need changed laws? Yes, we need changed laws, but we need more changed hearts. Because when just the laws change and the hearts don't, oppression and injustice will still occur. Will you confess your sin and will you confess your rebellion? These are difficult days, to be sure. But it's in those valleys that God gives the vision of what he can do and who he is and what he has for his people. And when God hears our confession, he loves to initiate his unshakable promises. So let's pray for souls to be made alive in Jesus because when people move from death to life, churches change. And when churches change, communities change. And when communities change, cities change. And cities change and states change and nations change. And as we pray, God moves. Do we still believe that? Amen. So let's pray to a God who loves us and hears us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the story of Nehemiah. And God, ultimately, uh, it's, it's not a story of Nehemiah. It's a story of you. It's a story of a God who is faithful to his people even when they are unfaithful. And God, I am praying that the work that you did in the heart of Nehemiah, you would do in my heart, you would do in this church, you would do in our hearts. God, and that um, you would bring renewal and that you would bring revival and God, that we would trust you. And God, I, I realize the, the scariness of it all. And so God, I pray uh, for the faith that would allow us to see through the lie. God, the faith that would allow us to trust and to know that you are good and that you are for us and that you will never leave us or forsake us. I want to extend an invitation right now. Um, if you're listening online or you're in the room, it could be that there's people here or people listening and you would say, you know, I've never put my faith or my trust or my confidence in Jesus. I've heard of him. I've heard about him, but I don't know him. And I just want to create space and create time right now for you to have a conversation with him. 
The invitation of God is this. If you're, if you're weary, meaning you're worn out by your own um, sin or your own attempts at trying to make yourself right, the invitation is, he says, you come to me and you'll find rest. And so I just want to create space right now for you and that you just might say, God, break my heart and change me from the inside out.